Well, as I mentioned, you know, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and we certainly want to be thankful for those who have given their lives for us, but we're also thankful for those who are serving. And I want to give a particular shout out to those of you who are at Schriever Air Force Base, because without you, I would be lost, uh, quite literally. And that is, if you don't know this, you know, at Schriever, they control our global positioning satellite system, uh, which is you know, your GPS, your, your, you know, your, your watch. If you wear a Garmin, it tracks how far you run and where you've been. If you're looking to find your way to your next vacation spot or, or to go to someplace new, you, you just ask Siri and she tells you how to get there. And she does it so nicely. You know, uh, even when you take a wrong turn, she doesn't yell at you like saying, you know, you idiot, you missed the turn. She just says, recalculating, right? And, uh, and redirects you. And so, uh, you know, it's one of the, the best inventions, I think, of the modern era. You know, you know, you no longer have to get out the maps and fold them and never fold them back right. It just, uh, you just type in the directions and, and, you, and you go. Uh, but as uh, helpful as the GPS is, you know, we don't really use it that often. In fact, uh, probably, you probably can go weeks without ever using it. And, and there's a reason why. You, don't, you know, I did not need to use my GPS to figure out how to get to church this morning. I pretty much know the route. I will not break it out to figure out how to get home. I, I know how to do that. To get most places in Colorado Springs, I just don't need a GPS. And so it sits there unused on my phone. I think prayer is a lot like our GPS system. Uh, we we uh, are glad to have it there when we need it because, you know, there are those times where you feel a little lost, a little confused. You, uh, you realize you're a little bit out of your element. Uh, but most of the time, you just don't really need it, do you? Because you have things under control. Like when you go to work, you don't need to pray. You know how to do your work, don't you? I mean, you go to work, you work hard, you do your job. That's what you do. Uh, you don't need, uh, you, you know, you know how to parent, Right? And if you don't know how to parent, you just order a book off of Amazon and, and it will tell you what to do, follow the recipe and poof, perfect kids, right? Uh, marriage, I mean, seriously, you know how to do your part in your marriage. If there's a problem in your marriage, you know who it's not, right? It's that other person because you know what you're doing. We don't need help with the ordinary things of life. We've got that under control, but it's nice to have prayer there, kind of like the GPS, whenever we think we need it. But the truth is, as we learn here in this episode in the life of Jacob, uh, that we really are completely lost all the time. That we cannot make it on our own in any situation. That we are desperate for help. And in this life uh, episode, in Jacob's life, we learned that in order to prevail in prayer, we first must learn to be weak. You know, you think about why do we struggle in prayer? Some say, I, I don't have time. Some say, well, I forget. But, you know, I don't forget the things that I need. I don't forget the things that I'm desperate for. I make time for the things that I'm desperate for and the things that I need. The ultimate problem is we don't think we need to pray. And so... Let's look at the life of Jacob and see why we need to pray and how we can learn to be people of prayer. It all begins with, first of all, admitting that you need help. Admitting that you need help. Now, now Jacob 
was a deceitful man. In fact, his very name, Jacob, he was named this because he was born with his twin brother Esau. Esau comes out first and Jacob is grabbing hold of his heels and they named him Jacob, which means trickster or deceiver. And he lived up to his name his whole life. And so when he was a young man, uh, he tricked his brother out of his birthright. He got his brother to sell him his birthright for a pot of stew. Later on, Uh, When his father was going to give his blessing to his brother Esau, Jacob tricked his blind old father by dressing up like Esau, putting animal skins on him so he'd smell and feel like Esau. He tricked his blind old father into giving him the blessing. Jacob was a conniving, scheming, evil young man. He was was just this, the the viciousness of, in fact, think about this, tricking your blind old father That's the kind of man he was. In fact, it was so bad that when Esau realized what had happened, Esau said, I'm gonna kill you as soon as dad dies. So Jacob was good at two things. He was good at number one, deceiving people. The other thing he was good at was running away. And that's what he did. He ran away. He ran away and went with his uh, uncle Laban. And while he was with his uncle Laban, life went pretty well. He, he married two of Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah. He had, uh, as we mentioned here, 11 children. There's also a daughter there, Dinah, that he had as well. He had 11 sons and Dinah. And then he um, became very rich. His flocks grew and grew and grew. And so became so prosperous that there came to be tension between him and his uncle Laban. And so Jacob realized he needed to do what he'd always done, run away. And so he escapes in the middle of the night, takes his wives, which are Laban's daughters, right? All of his children, which are Laban's grandchildren, all of his flocks, and he just takes off without even telling Laban what he is doing. By the time Laban realizes what has happened, uh, Jacob is long gone, and Laban now sets out to catch Jacob with every intent to kill him. And he chases him across the desert, and it takes him seven days to finally catch up. And when they finally catch up, they have this mano y mano talk. They get together, and they build a monument And they decide to settle it this way. Here's the monument, and Laban says, I won't go into your land, you don't go into my land, and the implication is, you ever come back across this border, I'm gonna kill you. And so now, he's got Laban to to the north, and he's headed back home where there is whom? His brother Esau, who also had threatened to kill him. If he goes back, Laban's gonna kill him. If he goes forward, Esau might kill him. And he's thinking maybe Esau's cooled off over these past two decades. It's 20 years. I mean, really, you can hold the grudge that long. And so he sends messages to Esau to say that he's coming. And the messengers come back and they say, Esau is so excited that you're coming home that he's coming to greet you himself and he's bringing 400 mighty men. Now that doesn't sound like the welcome wagon. And so, so now Jacob is literally caught between a rock and the hard place, right? He, he, can't, he can't run away. There's no place to run, and he cannot scheme. And so what does he do? Well, he actually prays this time, right? He prays. He prays because he's finally in a point of, of, of desperation. He realizes uh, that, that he, he can't turn anywhere else. And so with this realization, he prays. And he calls out to God, but it's a remarkably different prayer than we've seen from him before. He realizes, as he realizes now that he's between the rock and the hard place, that this is a situation that he cannot solve, he understands that actually 
This has always been the case for his life. That, that in all of his life, he's had this tremendous amount of success, but even his success cannot be attributed to his scheming, to his conniving, to his shrewd business acumen. He realizes now at this moment of brokenness that all the blessing that he has has come from God. Look at what he says in verse 10 as he prays to God. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He says, God, I now realize that now that I'm broken and I realize I, I don't have the power to handle this situation, it was never about me to begin with. I came across this river, and all I had was a stick. And now I've got so much stuff, it takes two camps of people to fill it all up. I'm not worthy of this. It all comes from you. Jacob realizes that uh, the situation is beyond his ability to manage, but life has always been beyond his ability to manage. I think we're a lot like Jacob. Uh, we're a lot like Jacob that when we face a crisis, we think that, that life is now beyond our ability to manage, but like Jacob, we need to come to a realization that it's always been that way. It's always been beyond our control. We, we think we can succeed at work on our own. You know what to do, as we said. You just work hard, do your job. We know how to parent, right? In fact, we're so good at parenting, we even can critique how other people do it, right? And we can see when other people are doing it wrong so clearly. And so we're good at that sort of thing. And, and so we think we can handle life on our own. Uh, but but it's, we, we think that it's all about us. As silly as it sounds, to think that we can do life on our own. We live as if that were true. You know, we work without praying. I mean, when was the last time you, you, you prayed about your work, not when there was a crisis? Or we think we can parent without praying. We think we can do schoolwork without praying. We, we think we can uh, you know, manage our money without praying. We think we can do everything on our own. But God says you're not made to live on your own. So we, we have this image, and I think this is particularly true in the western part of the, the world and even more true in the Mountain West. We have this idea that to be a man, to be a human, to be a person is to stand independently alone and to need nobody else. I mean, John Wayne is our hero, right? And if those of you who are younger, look him up, okay? Uh, true Grit, the original, okay? Uh, and we think you stand alone. You're there in the saddle by yourself. You don't need anybody else, and that's what it means to be a man. But that is not what it means to be a man. God created us, first of all, he created us for community with one another. John Donne said that no man is an island to himself, that we are, are all part of the larger continent of one another. But that's not only true in our relationship to one another, but God created us to live in relationship with him. We were never meant to live independently on our own. And it is not just, that's not a sign of weakness. It's, 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 it's not a design flaw. It is who we are. And, and it's what not only gives us the strength to live life, but it's also what makes life more enjoyable. I mean, think about this. For most of us, we like to live around other people. You could go live in the mountains alone by yourself without any human contact, and the rest of us are going to think you're pretty weird. It's just, that's because that's a strange thing to do. We, we want, instead, where do we live? We live in communities. We live in households. We get married. We add people to our households. We have children. We add more people to our households. We, we're always around people because we're designed to live in a community. You know, when you go out to eat, 
food tastes better with family and friends than it does by yourself. It just does. Life is better in community. And that's not only true with other human beings, it's true with God. We were made to live in relationship with God. We were made to live in dependence on God. We're not able to live on our own. Just as crops need water and sunshine and fertilizer, we need God in order to live. And so Jacob is now realizing this. He's broken and realizes his need for God. Well, not only do we see, have to see our need for God to admit we need help, secondly, we have to admit we need grace. And admitting we need grace means we understand we don't deserve the help that we get from God. Again, remember, Jacob is not a good man. You know, the Bible tells us that God chooses Jacob over Esau. Clearly, God did not choose Jacob over Esau because Jacob was such a good, honorable person. He was not a good, honorable person. He cheated his brother. He tricked his elderly, blind father. He deceived his uncle on um, numerous occasions. And whenever he could not get out of trouble through way of deception, he would run away. He is not a man of virtue. Yet despite all of this, God blesses him. When he ran away from home, all he had was the, the shirt on his back. And now he has so much so that in verse 10, he prays and he says, Lord, I'm unworthy of all that you have done for me. Notice that in his prayer. He doesn't say, God, bless me because I deserve better than this. He says, God, I don't know why you've blessed me this richly so far. I am not worthy of all of this. And when we come to God in prayer, we come on the basis of grace on the basis of God's character, not our merit. Uh, this week I was reading about a, a comedian by the name of Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes grew up in, uh, in an evangelical Christian home, and in his own words, he did everything right. You know, he went to church every Sunday, he memorized the Bible, he, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, he didn't have premarital sex, he even went on a mission trip to Africa and played in the praise band at his church. He did it all right, and he was uh, pursuing a career in, in comedy, and just as he was trying to kickstart his career in comedy, his wife left him for another man. He was devastated by this, and here's what he said. He said, I felt like the Lord hadn't held up his end of the bargain and I was angry. You ever felt that way? I'll admit it. I felt that way, right? When things go wrong, I'm saying, God, I've done my part. Well, you know, uh, why, why haven't you done your part? I'm, I'm following the rules. I'm following the recipe. Why aren't you coming through for me? I've done my part. Do you notice what's happening there? On what basis are we approaching God? We're saying, God, Everything in my hands I bring, simply to my works I cling, right? We're saying, I have done more to deserve this. Pete Holmes, I, I, I feel for him. I, I, I feel his pain in reading his story. But he's coming before God with this view of Christianity that is not Christianity at all. It says, as long as I serve you and do these things, therefore, God, you will bless me based on my works. Notice how Jacob prays. Jacob doesn't pray that way. Jacob prays, he says, Lord, I am not worthy of even of the blessings you have already given me, much less what I'm asking of you now. I'm not worthy to receive these things. Uh, he doesn't deserve it. You know, Jerry Bridges says, I believe that human morality rather than flagrant sin 
is the greatest obstacle to the gospel today. Human morality rather than flagrant sin. Because you're thinking, I'm pretty good. I'm doing this right. I'm in church this Sunday. It's Memorial Day weekend and I'm in church. I mean, don't I get bonus points for this one? Seriously, I, I'm, I'm doing it right. And so what we're seeing is going before God on the basis of our own righteousness and you cannot lay hold of the righteousness of Christ and cling to, while clinging to your own righteousness at the same time. John Gerstner put it this way. He said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. That our good works are keeping us from God because we believe that we can come to him based on our own merit. But the gospel tears all that apart because the reason Jesus died is not so that good people could go to heaven. Jesus died because we have sinned against a holy God offended him, and the only way we can be accepted by him is through the death of God's own son. He died out of love for us while we were still sinners. He died out of love for us so that he would take the curse so that we might receive his blessing. He took our punishment so that we receive his inheritance. And when we come before God as his people, we do not come before him pleading our works. Instead, we come as the song rightfully says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We have to come to him on the basis of grace. Jacob does that. He sees his weakness and he sees his need for grace. And, as, and so then what do we do? Well, then we win by begging for mercy. We win by begging for mercy. Now, Jacob prays this prayer in verse 10, but have you ever done that? You prayed, but you still have your doubts? I, let's be honest, we, we pray, and I say, oh, dear Lord, help me. In fact, when Jacob prays, not only does he pray, he also recounts God's promise. God has already promised to bless Jacob and protect him. And Jacob recites that back to God. He says, God, you remember your promise to me. And he prays that and he recites the promise, but he's, he's still a little unsure, right? He's still a little unsure. And so he's about to, uh, to meet um, Esau and the next day. And so he starts scheming again. That's what he does best. So in verses 13 to 21, we read that he sends Esau just numerous gifts, like every you know, few feet, a different group of people would show up with another gift from Jacob to Esau, some cattle, some camels, some goats, some sheep, and all of these things. And he's thinking, maybe if I, if I bribe Esau, maybe if I show him honor and flatter him, he'll forget about his plans to kill me. And so he schemes, but then he's not real sure his scheme is going to work. And so it's late at night. He's going to meet Esau the next day. And he's realizing he could be killed, and so he can't go to sleep. You ever had that feeling? Yeah. You got something happening the next day. You don't know how it's going to go. Jacob's like this. He goes, he can't sleep, and he realizes the next day they've got to cross this river. And while they're crossing the river, they're going to be sitting ducks for, for Esau's army. So Jacob, in fear, rouses up the whole camp. Uh, servants, children, animals, everything, and does a river crossing at night. Now, river crossing can be dangerous anytime, but at night, remember, no flashlights, no streetlights, nothing. He is in darkness. He is so scared of Esau that he's willing to risk a night river crossing with all of his animals and his children. He gets them settled across the river. Then he goes back to where they're camping and stays there by himself. And then we read, this incredibly brief verse that, uh, 
that seems to, uh, to leave out so much detail. Uh, look at verse 24. And Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I'd like a little more detail there. That's awfully brief. Jacob was alone and he wrestled with a man. Like, what happened? And, and I imagine Jacob was wondering what happened. Here he is, he's alone in the dark, and all of a sudden a man comes up to him in the dark and starts wrestling with him. And it's not like, hey, a little prayful wrestle. This is a death match, and he knows it. Is it one of Laban's assassins? Is it one of Esau's assassins? Is it Esau himself? He doesn't know, but he's in the wrestling match of his life. Now, in his mortal combat, his very life is at stake. And before the night is over, you'll find out that this man, simply called the man in this passage, is no ordinary man, but God himself. And God has stooped low, taking on human form for the very purpose of wrestling with Jacob. Something important here. We often will speak about wrestling with God in prayer. That's not what's happening here. Jacob does not go and wrestle with God. Jacob does not challenge God to a wrestling match. God is the initiator. God is wrestling with Jacob. God is taking Jacob to the mat, and he is the initiator. God is on the attack, and Jacob cries out in prayer in this wrestling match, asking God for his blessing. And God answers Jacob, all of Jacob's prayers, by pinning him down. It's as if God is saying, I cannot bless you until I break you. Until you realize that you're weak and you're helpless and you're hurting and you need me, I cannot bless you. He takes him to the mat. Jacob puts up a good fight, but then God doesn't play fair. Notice what God does. With a touch, he dislocates his hip. He dislocates his hip. Now he's in a wrestling match, and, and if you've ever wrestled and to think you can wrestle without the use of your legs... He has no chance whatsoever. He, you know, he can't wrestle anymore. He, and he's dislocated hip. That has to be pretty painful. If you've ever dislocated a bone, you know that is extremely painful. And the hip joint is very, very painful. So he's in deep, deep pain. He has no chance of winning. And so what does Jacob do? He just grab hold and he holds on and he refuses to let go. God's wrestled Jacob into submission. And then Jacob finally realizes he cannot win and he lets go and holds on and God says, let go because the sun is coming up. And the danger here is if the sun comes up and Jacob sees God face to face, God says, no man can see him face to face and live. And Jacob says, I don't care. I'm not letting go until you bless me. I am desperate for your blessing. I will not let go until you bless me. And, and, and even though he's in tremendous pain, and here is where the transformation of Jacob occurs. The man says to him, what is your name? He says, it's Jacob, deceiver, deceiver, trickster, person who rips people off. That's my name. And he says, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will be Israel because you have wrestled with God and prevailed. Now look at this again. Does this look like victory? Does this look like victory? Here's Jacob. He's broken. He's, got to, he's going to walk with a limp the rest of his life. And yet God says, you've wrestled with God and prevailed. In fact, if you turn to the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Hosea states it this way. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. 
Hosea says of Jacob, he struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for favor. Now, you catch the irony? He struggled with the angel and overcame him. How did he overcome the angel? By weeping and begging for favor. That's the parallel thought there. How does Jacob win? By crying like a little boy and begging for God to show him favor. How do you win in prayer? You break down, admit your weakness, and you beg, beg God for his favor. That's what it means to be victorious in prayer. That, that, that is the, the, the picture of victory. And then we end with this image, uh, end of the scene. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Here goes Jacob, limping forward to meet Esau. And that's the posture of a saint, limping forward. For the rest of Jacob's life, he would have this constant, daily, probably painful reminder of his own weakness, and it was the greatest gift that God could give to him, that the path to victory is limping. Your greatest struggle in life, the greatest threat to your success in life is not your weakness, it's not your incompetence, it's not your strength, your, 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 your failure. Your greatest threat to you is your competence and your strength and your stubborn independence. And when we realize that we are weak and we are needy, that's when we will prevail in prayer. The reason we struggle in prayer is prayers like our GPS. We just don't need it. But when you realize you're weak and needy, then you come to the cross. Then you come to the Lord. And you say, Lord, without you, I cannot do this. Without you, I cannot raise my children. Without you, I cannot do my job. Without you, I cannot manage my finances. Without you, I cannot handle my marriage. Without you, I can't even handle the most mundane task in life. Lord, I need you. I need you every hour of every day. I need you. And while that's humbling, it's also exhilarating. Because God's, God says, finally, 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 you know who you are. You're meant to live in communion with me. And I am the God who delights to meet your needs. On your own, you're a wreck. But with me, I will care for you. And that's why we come to the table today. Even as we need bread to live, we need Christ to live. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Even as we, we need uh, just life or things for joy, he gives us the cup to remind us that joy and forgiveness are found in the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's come to the table as those who are weak and needy, who know we need Christ, but delight that we have him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the God who out of kindness breaks you, breaks us. That you are the God who shows us a severe mercy when we need it most. That you're the God who will take us down, pin us to the mat until we cry and realize that our only hope is out of desperation to beg you to bless us. And Lord, we praise you that you are not the kind of God who blesses us reluctantly, but the kind of God who blesses us joyfully because you're our Father. And so, Lord, as those who are weak and needy, as those who are sinful, 
as those who have failed to, to follow after you with whole hearts, as those who've tried to live their independent lives uh, apart from you, we pray even now as we come to the table that you'd feed us by the bread and by the cup, that we know we are nourished in Christ and that our life is found in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.